Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer turned psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today we have a really special guest who has really done some great things for our country and is continuing to do some interesting work. And she has some really good stories to tell as well about, you know, the nerd factor and how she's dealt with them and is dealt with it in herself and how she communicates with people. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Abby Malco. She is a Navy veteran. She's also an Iraq veteran. And um, she is the Commodity Manager of Cloud and Software at Intel. And she's also a veteran scholar of the Bush Foundation. And she's working on AI solutions on social media to prevent veteran suicide. Now we're gonna get into that because that's a really interesting topic in terms of uh, how we communicate and use technology to do that and what's going on there. But first, let's welcome Abby. Welcome. Thank you, Joni. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I want our listeners and our viewers to hear your story because, first of all, I think in terms of the reinventing nerds part, you have a kind of a unique stance on things, transitioning from the military into your role at Intel. Mm -hmm. So tell us how that is and you know how you came to do this. Yeah, so I don't have a, a technical background. Uh, I worked uh, in the Navy primarily uh, in supply chain management. Uh, so I decided when I went to grad school, I went to grad school for my MBA that I wanted to transition uh, into the tech industry because for me, uh, the tech industry was where all the growth uh, was really occurring and where the future really is. Uh, so for me, it was a very dynamic industry that I was attracted to. Uh, I was at the MBA Veterans uh, Conference, and uh, Intel, to be honest, Intel wasn't on my immediate horizon. I was really looking at companies like Google, uh, Facebook, uh, things of that nature, and Intel recruited me there, and they really were attracted to my supply chain background, and it ended up being a really good fit for me. So, uh, so I work in a more uh, technical role now because I specialize in cloud and software, which obviously I don't have a background in cloud and software, but uh, Intel took the chance to give me that training. And uh, I think the great thing about having a military background is you're able to adapt very easily to new situations that may be ambiguous to you at first, uh, but we just rolled right in with our sleeves up and we are able to uh, handle the new technology and basically learn as we go and take the initiative to, to learn from every opportunity. Well, that's so interesting. I heard two things. First of all, the company's taking the chance to train you and, and mm -hmm. putting you into that technical role. And also the military helped you be adaptable. So a couple of things that seem key, you can, of course, develop adaptability outside the military, mm -hmm. too. But how did that, I mean, just give us an example of how you developed your adaptability in the military. Well, I think the first time I really was forced to adapt was when uh, I got deployed to Iraq uh, because 
uh, I was the only female in my in my uh, company, uh, and I was very um, uncomfortable in that role. Uh, but I was also the only person with a logistics and supply chain background. So because of that, they put me in charge of a, a group of men who were all senior to me, uh, and including Iraqis, and uh, it was really uncomfortable because they were senior to me and I wasn't used to telling people who were senior to me what to do, but they considered me the subject matter expert. So because of that, I had positional authority and which was something that was completely new to me as a junior sailor. I was only at E4 at the time, but they trusted uh, me to take uh, charge of the entire inventory um, and basically run the entire operation. Uh, so that really required a lot of adapting because I had to learn how to not only work with men who were senior to me, but also to work with Iraqis who couldn't speak English. Uh, and we had a language barrier and they weren't comfortable working for women due to their own cultural beliefs. So it really, I had to really bridge a lot of gaps there in order to be successful uh, in that role. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. And a lot of different issues going on at the same time. And sometimes people have those issues here in the States too. Um, whether or not they're Iraqi and the culture there, but just in terms of having a woman leader. Have you run into that at all? Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, it was not easy for them at first to have a, a woman leader. Uh, you know, I, I obviously didn't take anything personal what they said because I, again, there was a language barrier. I mean, in the beginning, they would, you know, try to spit on me or whatever, but, wow. you know, you just have yeah. to have a tough skin in that situation and have your work prove that you're someone of character. And I think my work proved that I was someone of character because I wouldn't tell them what to do if I wasn't willing to do it myself. And then they saw how hard I worked. And after that, they ended up really respecting me. Yeah. Okay. So I'm hearing some people strategies here. And first of all, just proving yourself yes. and being willing to do the work yourself. Mm -hmm. They saw you doing this too, or yes. demonstrated yes. it so that uh, they felt that you were treating them with respect. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yes. Wow. That's yeah. That's a story that I don't hear very often. Being sit on at work. <laughs> I'm just like, whoa. That's <laughs> so. You, you talked about going from military to civilian, but also from non-tech into technology at Intel. So what kind of issues came up there? I mean, how did you come to earn your respect at Intel, not having had that experience and that background? You know, uh, I think they, they obviously, in the beginning, I was very nervous because I didn't know the nature of the cloud uh, and the software market. I didn't know the nature of how Intel used that technology, how we could become a leader with that technology. Uh, I really had to learn from experience. And there were a couple hiccups along the way where I did make a few mistakes. Uh, but I think I think my manager really expected me to make those mistakes because he, he always uh, told me that oh, everyone new to this area always makes a mistake you know, don't take it too hard on yourself. And I was really taking it hard on myself if I would make a mistake. Uh, but I really just was very proactive and, and just reached out to as many people as I could. Like, hi, I'm new to Intel. Please explain what your role is like, how long you've been working at Intel, what you like about your role, uh, to really just gain information that way. And I, I uh, leveraged my alumni network. I leveraged my um, the military network here at Intel. And basically, one person would 
refer me to another person who would refer me to another person. And that was honestly the most beneficial than reading a book or a manual. It was really just having discussions with people in different uh, uh, job responsibilities at uh, Intel. That was really honestly what gave me the most value. So then you were learning what they did and what yes. roles? Yes, what they did. And uh, basically, they were, they'd were they be working in a similar role to me already. So I learned from them, like, what were your biggest mistakes? What were your biggest challenges? How did you overcome them? What should I know about this industry? Uh, what can you tell me? And really just going into these conversations with an agenda of what I wanted to ask them. And then the uh, relationships were just formed after that. And uh, they, uh, you know, I was able to get mentors along the way and a sponsor and uh, really people who, who believed in my, my uh, work ethic, right? So I had to really, really prove myself in the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. One of the things I talk to people about a lot in, in this leadership world, or just in communicating with people in general, is the empathy factor, being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And it sounds like you had a great strategy for making that happen because you asked them what their challenges were and what their you know, success factors were and you know, how things worked in their jobs so that you could put yourself in their shoes. You could imagine yourself uh, when they're dealing with things and how they would have a different perspective from yours. Yeah. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a great tip. I mean, you know, it might've taken you a bit of time. How did you, sort of justify that at the beginning. You must have put a lot of time into that, going out and talking to people. Yeah, so my manager kind of gave me six months to really ramp up, uh, mm -hmm. but I wanted to beat that goal and ramp up before six months. Um, I, I think in this, in this company and in, in this kind of industry, you're never gonna stop learning. There's always going to be moments where you may think you know the right solution or you, you think you may know the right company, but you're never going to stop learning. It's so dynamic. It's, it's fast paced. It's really a, a software and cloud. I mean, it's a startup, a lot of startups you're dealing with, you know, the typical Silicon Valley companies, but then you're also dealing with startups that are completely different from that as well, because everyone wants to create the new greatest app and be a millionaire. Like, I think, honestly, it's just the ramp up time. I, I think I was able to beat that by by not only reaching out to people one-on-one, -on -one, but also registering for any training I could get. So Intel has a really great like web-based training and classroom training. Um, and I just basically volunteered for any training I thought would be of value to me. So that helped a lot as well. And then I would just read a lot of the, the, the paperwork involved with it, all the contracts. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes that gets a little dry and boring, but the terms were starting to become more familiar for me. Yeah, I think you've mentioned in the past the number of acronyms you have to learn to work at Intel or in this industry. Yeah, I remember that when I started at Cisco, it was like, you talk about the language barrier. <laughs> I can't wait, but this is just great. You know? Yeah. Um, wow. So you've talked a lot about the successes you've had and, and your strategies. What kind of challenges did you run into? you know, moving in, you know, from these different positions in terms of the people challenges? Well, uh, there, while some people were willing to talk to me, some people were less helpful. And uh, it was hard not to take that personally. Um, because in the military, we're always so quick to help people without question. It's our duty. Um, at Intel, obviously, it's a little different. Everyone has to really focus on their own 
responsibilities first before they can really focus their attention on, on other people. So that for me was a little challenging to overcome. And as well as, as the male factor, uh, while the, the male leadership is obviously very prevalent in the military, it's very similar here at Intel. And I found it challenging that in my group, there were no women in managerial roles that I could really reach out to yeah. and talk to. And it was it was very male dominated. And I felt like I, I didn't have any allies that I could go to. So I had to really look outside of my group to find women in uh, leadership roles who I could lean on for support. Um, so that I think were the, the two biggest challenges. Well, let's touch on that for a second because yeah, I, I, I hear you on the, the women in technology thing. And um, so what are some of the differences? Why would it be more important to have women to talk to than men for you, for example? Well, I, I was primarily worried about career progression too, because if I'm not seeing women in, in managerial roles, then what is my future at Intel like? Am I ever going to get promoted as a manager? And that can almost uh, be demotivating to you because you see how there's women that seem to be stuck at the same level and not moving up. And you're like, well, where's my ceiling? Where does it exist? Can I break that ceiling? So that's part of the, the challenge too, is because it's, you can use that almost to demotivate you and you have to really look and find the reason why I was looking for a female leader outside of my group was to know that at least Intel was still investing in women at above a certain level mm -hmm. to know that it was happening and how they were able to get themselves to that, to that position. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was honestly one of the reasons I, it's important for me to reach out to women because it is a very male dominated industry. Yeah, I know. I know. And so I'm, I'm sort of deviating here, but I want to ask you, I mean, what kind of things do you think that you or other women have brought to the table that have been advantages for just being simply another woman in the, the role as opposed to another man? I think one of the biggest advantages I personally have brought to the role is efficiency. I don't think my manager expected me to be as efficient as I am. Uh, and that that's, comes to the nature of the ability to multitask. I'll take on at least six different deals mm -hmm. while working on the veteran board, while being the ops manager for the group. And he doesn't seem to think I can get it all done, but I am able to get it all done because I'm able to multitask. And I think that's one of the greatest things that women bring to the group is our ability to really be efficient, be resourceful and stick our nose to the grindstone and just get the job done. I see that, to be honest, I see that a lot more among the women. Yeah, the uh, that's interesting because that is one of the differences they've seen in neurological studies of the brain, you know, that uh, women and men have slight differences in the multitasking there. Men tend to be more linear and women uh, managing more multitasking. Um, okay, well, that's great. I want to make sure we have time to talk about a couple of your really other interesting things here. Uh, first of all, you know, um, can you talk a little bit about women veterans? Okay, we've talked about women and, and technology, but what kind of challenges do women veterans face when they're moving into this role or out of, out of the uh, military? Uh, I think personally from experience uh, and from what I've seen working in the veteran community is they tend to disappear and there's less of a community for them than there are for, for male veterans. Um, for example, I, I volunteered a lot at Veterans Village San Diego mm -hmm. uh, when I was an undergrad, and uh, they didn't have any resources available for women. 
Uh, and I always thought that was strange because we could never identify the women who were at risk of being homeless or who, you know, didn't have a place to live. And we couldn't identify the women homeless veteran population because there was nowhere for them to go. So it, it, people still think of the military in a very traditional sense that it is male dominated. Uh, and, and because of that, they've, these facilities have been built to not be able to include women. Uh, so I think it's easy for women veterans to disappear and to not have that community after they transition. And you have to really be proactive in that sense. And I always made the, uh, the, the decision to really identify other veterans everywhere I go, whether it was you know my university, whether it's Intel, whether it's moving across country, I've always, wherever I'm at, I'm always gonna try to identify a veteran who is there to be my ally and then uh, for me to be their ally. And then it kind of just grows from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, it brings us to another topic that uh, some of the work you do, being a veteran scholar at the Bush Foundation, the, the project that you're working on. Now let's go through this bit by bit here because it's really actually fairly complicated. So you work on AI solutions, artificial intelligence solutions on social media, to prevent veteran suicide. So tell, tell our listeners and our viewers what that's about. You know, I've noticed in my research so far that there's a lot of uh, information that is not available to the general public on what is already being done in technology for preventing veteran suicide. AI um, has really grown on multiple platforms. Uh, Facebook is a really good example of this. They first started the solution where you could self-report someone at risk, and now they're they're able to automatically detect someone who is at risk. Uh, for example, someone may be on a Facebook Live video and may say something that could be a suicide uh, risk uh, symptom, and they'll automatically uh, send a pop-up to that person's computer or to that person's phone saying, are you in need of help? Please click click yes, and then they'll directly uh, connect them to the National Suicide Hotline. So, uh, and Google is also doing something similar based on how people are, what people are entering in Google. If they see something um, that is at a flag for them as being suicidal, they'll automatically, a pop-up will appear saying, please con contact the, the National Suicide Hotline. Uh, so there's a lot of progress being made in, uh, in this space. And what I found uh, the greatest challenge to be uh, is that it's not tailored in intervention yet. And there's a lot of privacy concerns. Um, so there's so much growth potential here because right now as it stands, it's just a general solution, but it's not tailoring the population. So if you're LGBTQ, if you're a veteran, if you are at risk for suicide, it's sending you to the same, same person, the same company, the same group, that they would for anyone else. And it's really now the focus is how can we tailor the intervention to be more effective? Mm -hmm. Because again, veterans deal with different health uh, risks than the general public, such as tra traumatic brain injury, PTSD, that only someone really trained in that uh, is able to uh, respond to and to treat. So it, tailored intervention is extremely important. Okay, I wanna get into this a couple levels here. First of all, I just wanna commend you for working on a pop-up application that's really useful and beneficial to people rather than just annoying, like, oh no, another ad. But this is actually something that's tailored to help the person rather than a salesperson get more clicks or whatever. So that in itself is just seeing a benefit of some of these AI uh, technologies on social media. 
and because we don't always go there immediately when we, when we think of that. But secondly, just backtrack for a second and tell us why veterans, I mean, why uh, I'm clearly they're at higher risk of suicide. Do you have some figures or some kind of way of explaining that to us? Yeah, obviously, you know, everyone goes to the data um, and the data, the VA hasn't updated the data in the most recent year, but the last figure I saw was on average 20 veterans a day were um, killing themselves. So if you multiply that by the number of days in a year, you're talking in the thousands, right? And, and there are multiple reports have indicated that more veterans have died from suicide than they've died in combat. And so there's really a lot of uh, silent wounds here that are not that are not visible that people tend to uh, not give the same attention to as say an amputee, for example, because these are the invisible wounds and they carry them and they're not, they're not being treated correctly. They're not being diagnosed correctly. Uh, and, and because of that, it leads to, to depression and suicide. So it's, it's, the numbers are there to prove that there's a large enough population that needs this help. And I think, and, and personally, uh, how Intel looks at it is if we already have the technology, why can't we use that technology to help someone in a positive way? The technology shouldn't just be a for-profit model. It should always be looked at as ways to improve people's well-being. Um, and so it's, it's an obligation, I think, that a lot of tech companies uh, see that they have is really using their technology to benefit the greater good. Yeah, wow. And do you know of other applications that are being developed yeah. to do this? Yeah, it looks like a lot of uh, companies are in this space already. Microsoft uh, is exploring solutions. I know Amazon was talking about potentially doing something with Alexa, and they also were talking about doing something with a dash button. Um, and obviously, Facebook's already doing this, uh, and Google, Twitter. So basically, all the major uh, social media platforms. And then um, legislation was recently passed asked to uh, explore making the National Suicide Hotline a three-digit number, so similar to like 911, right. for example. And then you can also use Siri on your, on your phone or Google Assistant to say, you know, please call the Veteran Crisis Line. You don't even need to know the number anymore. So there's a lot of uh, initiative in this space to make access to care uh, more uh, accessible to the person in crisis. Right. Okay. Uh uh, and that's just great. I mean, so that you don't even know the numbers and all that. So, I mean, even just getting the word out is key. So have you seen, you know, I mean, are you doing other AI solutions or work with other people in AI that are helping communication technology in other ways besides suicide? Suicide, well, I focus my project specifically on uh, suicide prevention. Um, in order for it to be successful, it takes a lot of people to be involved. You have to have clinicians, you have to have the company, uh, you have to have more than the one company. All the companies need to buy into it. Um, and then you also have to have the, the DOD, the VA, and all that to buy into it, and the privacy risks as well. So in order for there to be even more progress in this space, it really takes a lot of uh, people to come together in order to make it work, right? So it's the progress is there. There's just a lot of potential still to be made. What kind of challenges have you run into, especially getting all these people, different organizations, different disciplines together? Well, it's unfortunate, but you can't appeal to them on only an emotional level mm -hmm. because companies are going to look at it as, well, how many people can I really directly benefit 
what if I used AI in a different capacity to benefit thousands, like say for a blood drive or something else? Mm -hmm. So they may not want to focus on that solution because less and less people uh, may not benefit from that. So, it, you know, at, at, one, at some point you have to get the buy-in from the company, but at the same time, they, they may want to refocus their energy on something that they think would be uh, more uh, worthy and affect more people. So, again, obviously, so many people are killing themselves a day, but at the end of the day, you have to appeal to them on more than an emotional level. You have to have the, the data to really back it up. Well, that's so interesting because so often when I talk to technical people, it's about telling them how to appeal to people on an emotional level because usually it's all about just the technology or something. Yeah. And here's a real example of uh, something that has this direct emotional appeal right there built in um, in terms of the project and how that's not even enough. So that adaptability you're talking about, we're circling all the way back to that and the flexibility in your influencing techniques. Mm -hmm. right different ways I mean, you've got the data you've got you know the business case right and you've got the emotional appeal you've got uh, several different angles to use and um, i'm sure you also have to tailor it to all the different types of groups that you're dealing with outside of intel i mean you just said that there were like half a dozen different organizations that you're getting on board like from uh the dod to other for-profit companies you know that that's it just would be extremely uh, uh, different uh, and difficult. Do you do this uh, in terms of you're running the project or do you have other people who are in there communicating as well? How does that work? Um, no, I wouldn't say that I'm running the project. I'm really more um, in the information gathering component of it at this point. Okay. So uh, I worked with I have a, a support system in place at Intel that's been helping me with the project. Uh, we have a whole AI for good team uh, and they were the ones, they've been vetting uh, potential collaborators for me uh, and then I'm doing it on my own initiative as well. Um, and they, uh, and I'm also working with various academics, like um, some people, I've talked to a couple of professors uh, from different universities who specialize in uh, this type of, um, in computer uh, analytics and, and uh, machine learning, and, and basically that is their subject matter expertise, and they've already done substantial research on how social media uh, can be used to help people um, at risk for depression and uh, suicide. Uh, so I've walked to also talked to them. I've talked to, to nonprofits, VSOs. Uh, I've talked to um, you know, the crisis line. Uh, I've talked to uh, SAVE, Dan Reidenberg at SAVE. Uh, he was the, basically the guiding force behind getting social media to really do more for uh, mm -hmm. people in crisis uh, for suicide. So again, it takes a lot of players because people see it from different angles, right? So an, a, a clinician is going to see it very differently from a nonprofit, from a, from a corporation. So uh, it, it does take a community, honestly, to be successful in this, in this space. Okay, so Abby, I have to ask you this. So when you say you talk to all these people, how do you communicate with them? Is this something you do on the phone? Do you, you know, go to face to face? Are you emailing? How are you connecting with people? Because this is huge. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what kind of technology you're using. 
I know it's, I use Skype. I know we're so okay. cutting edge. <laughs> I do use Skype because okay. again, people are so geographically dispersed that you have to, and everyone's so busy that you have to be able to set up a meeting in a timely manner. So Skype is the go-to honestly. And uh, I'll, I'll shoot them a quick email and I'll be like, you know, so-and-so referred me to you. Here's my project. Would you be willing to discuss? And if they say yes, then I'll immediately schedule a meeting with them and uh, follow through and no one has ever turned me down for a conversation so oh, right yeah uh good for you you must have like the magic words <laughs> so when you do these statements they're always video so you uh, it can be video or it can be over the phone whatever is more convenient for the person okay. that i'm uh talking to because again i look at it like i'm the one inconveniencing you whatever they're yeah. more comfortable with okay i mean it seems obvious to you, Abby, but I'm telling you, some people don't always get that. So your, yeah. uh, just your strategy here is to reach out to them and make it in a way that's convenient for them and adapting to what they prefer and what yes. they schedule. Yeah. So how much time do you ask for when you have these conversations? Um, it, at least a half an hour. Okay. Depends on the nature of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll typically ask for a half hour. Some people ask for more time because they want mm -hmm. more time to discuss. Yeah. Okay. You know, because obviously there's a lot. The clinicians are more, they want more time because there's a lot of, a lot to talk about with the clinicians, mm -hmm. you know, and um, yeah, so I think it works pretty well just to, and I personalize my messages to them, how I myself have been personally impacted by suicide, why this, yeah. why this project is important to me, um, and that I'm doing it on my own initiative. It's not a, it's not for, for profit. It's really just something of, of my own initiative. And, mm -hmm. and I think they, that people respect that, uh, and they're willing to honor that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That, just on that note, I think we've really hit the nail on the head on this interview. I mean, we've covered so many topics here and your people strategies and also just working and doing really important stuff, really uh, something that matters in this world, in addition to just making enough to pay the rent or the mortgage or whatever it is, but you've found a way to get involved in a project and, and lead something that's, that's helping people who are at risk of suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, and helping veterans who have served our country. So I uh, appreciate that, Abby. And I just want to say thank you so much for being a guest on Reinventing Nerds. Thank you for having me. And this has been really educational. So to our viewers and our listeners, uh, tune in uh, next week. And uh, don't forget to subscribe and rate and review ReinventingNerds.com. And uh, thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.